Imagine creating a work of art that is so despised, so misunderstood, that it ruins your life. You're fired from your job, you lose your friends, and you're ridiculed in the newspapers. To top it off, police are sent to your home to confiscate all of your artwork. Now, bear in mind, this art of yours, it's not particularly controversial. It's not racist, it's not sexist, it's simply an expression of your own emotional truth, presented through your own artistic honesty, a style you've been developing for years. It's a work you are proud of. Now imagine, after all that devastation, just when you think your life is ruined, your art is then displayed in a widely publicized gallery show called Degenerate Art. And all the citizens of your city come to point, laugh, and gasp at your work. What would you do? Would you flee? Would you hide? Would you protest? Would you kill yourself? Can anyone blame you? This isn't a scene from a work of fiction. This is exactly what happened to the modern artists in Germany in the 1930s. Artists like Otto Dix, Max Beckmann, Konrad Felix Müller, Ernst Ludwig Kirchner, and Oskar Kokoschka. Artists who throughout the 1920s had become proud members of a popular avant-garde art movement in Berlin, each with a promising future, during a time when Berlin was considered the modern art capital of the world. And then the Nazis came into power in 1933, with the appointment of Adolf Hitler as the Chancellor of Germany. Now, it's important to always note that the Nazi party did not come into power with the unanimous support of the people. Initially, the Nazi Socialist Party only gained 33% of the vote, running on promises of reigniting pride in German culture, of bringing the nation back to the economic prosperity it had before World War I. Initially, the Nazi party promised to continue supporting freedom of the press and freedom of speech, the limits on those freedoms would come incrementally through laws and decrees that followed. In a follow-up election, the party then gained 43% of the vote. But that amount was enough to secure influence in the country, siphoning off power by force and through fear tactics on political opponents in a unique three-party government system until they seized all control. Immediately, within the first few months, the Nazis turned against their own culture, organizing book burnings in front of libraries and universities. The books thrown into the fire pit included those written by Jewish authors or any books which too closely conveyed man in his modern condition, any book critical of Germany, or any writing not promoting the strength and national pride of the German people. The goal was to redefine culture, to reshape it by force, to draw lines that define us and them, and thereby force compliance in an entire population, an ominous display for what was to come. The celebrated German poet Heinrich Heine wrote this prophetic statement in 1821, where books are burned, there too people will burn. In a bizarre coincidence, 
Heinrich Heine's books were among those thrown into the fire pits in 1933. Now, this by no means compares to the atrocities and soul-crushing realities of the Holocaust and the millions of Jewish lives and countless others who were killed. Those are horrors every individual needs to take time to learn about, because they are not only the horrors of Nazis, these are the horrors of man, a potential that is always present under the worst of circumstances. The war against art, which was really a war against human expression, was an early symptom that there was something desperately wrong in Germany. It was a way of forcing compliance in the public. And so we face the question, what makes art so dangerous? It seems that the second that art starts to be censored or restricted in a society, it's a symptom that something is desperately wrong with the cultural fabric of that society. Like Picasso famously said, art is a lie which tells the truth. Art communicates the human condition in all its beauty and ugliness. So when an authority in power wants to place limits on the human condition, it will limit art first. Suppression of art is a symptom of something desperately wrong in the cultural fabric of a society. And such things are not relegated to the history books. These measures are taking place to this day in various countries of the world, from North Korea to Belarus, from Afghanistan to Turkey. Artists and their art are being censored and suppressed. But today, we are looking at Nazi Germany. The year is 1937. The place, Berlin, the capital of Germany. Since the Nazi party's rise to power in 1933, an initiative has been enacted to confiscate thousands of artworks from the city's museums and galleries. In total, 16,000 works of art have been confiscated from around the country on the grounds that they are degenerate in nature. These include famous paintings by Vincent van Gogh, Matisse, Picasso, and Gauguin. But even more importantly, the works being labeled degenerate include those of local German artists who live and work in Berlin. Artists like Otto Dix, a brilliant oil painter associated with the Expressionist movement, who volunteered in the German army during World War I, serving as a machine gunner on the Eastern and Western fronts. Throughout the 1920s, Otto Dix's work represents the psychological traumas of war in chilling illustrations and paintings. In interviews, he describes a recurring nightmare he still has of a war-torn city in which he is crawling through the wreckage of annihilated buildings. When the Nazis come to power in 1933, Dix is fired from his professorship, teaching art at the Dresden Academy, where he had worked for six years. The reason given was that through his painting, he had committed a violation of the moral sensibilities and subversion of the militant spirit of the German people. One of his most notable works from this time period is called The War, which is a collection of 50 etchings done in black and white, depicting the various horrors and traumas he witnessed during World War I. You can view this work and many of the others we'll be discussing on a special page I've created on my site just for this episode. You can find it at www.mjdorian.com forward slash dangerous. 
That's M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N dot com forward slash D-A-N-G-E-R-O-U-S. Alternatively, you can also find the link in the episode description. Concerning Otto Dix's 50 etchings, the world-famous Christie's Auction House once described this collection as one of the finest and most unflinching depictions of war in Western art, unquote. One of the most well-known etchings is titled Stormtroopers Advancing Under Gas. It depicts a dark and chaotic scene of barbed wire, gas grenades, and masked soldiers charging toward the viewer. The rough etching lines give the illustration a strong feeling of tension and immediacy. But even more infamous than this collection is a painting Otto Dix completes in 1923, called The Trench. This is a large oil painting, exploring the same subject of trench warfare in World War I, in terrifying and surreal detail. This painting was confiscated by the Nazis and put on display for ridicule in a special exhibition called In Tartete Kunst, otherwise known as the Degenerate Art Exhibition. On July 19, 1937, the exhibit opens at the Institute of Archaeology in Munich. The intended goal of the exhibit is to mercilessly insult modern artists and their work, to make it clearly known to the German public that the Nazi party has forbidden any form of abstraction in painting, film, sculpture, or music. They even release a list of 10 restrictive rules that all jazz bands must follow. These include such ridiculous things like rule number one, pieces in swing rhythm are not to exceed 20% of the repertoires of light orchestras and dance bands. Then there's rule number two, in this so-called jazz type repertoire, preference is to be given to compositions in a major key and to lyrics expressing joy in life rather than Jewish gloomy lyrics. <laughs> oh boy, only gets worse from here. And how about rule number three? As to tempo, preference is also to be given to brisk compositions over slow ones, so-called blues. However, the pace must not exceed a certain degree of allegro, commensurate with the Aryan sense of discipline and moderation. On no account will Negro excesses in tempo, so-called hot jazz, or in solo performances be tolerated." Unquote. Later rules even ban vocal improvisation and restrict the use of saxophones. I'm not sure what kind of Nazi jazz these rules add up to, but it probably sucks. The Degenerate Art Exhibit features 650 artworks. The entire show is a spectacle to behold, from the disrespectful way the artworks are displayed to the stated reasons for their degeneracy. Each painting is hung crookedly on a wall, poorly lit and surrounded by graffiti. Some are laid on burlap sacks, and many are clustered together without rhyme or reason. Each painting or sculpture includes the name of the artist and states clearly in view why this work is degenerate. The varied statements include nature as seen by sick minds, or madness becomes method, or an insult to German womanhood, or other slogans which label the work Jewish, Bolshevik, or deranged. Here's a clip from a 1993 documentary about the exhibit called Degenerate Art. 
a man named Kurt Assis recounts visiting the exhibit when he was a 16-year-old high school student. His teacher urged the entire class to go and see it. It's in German, so I'll translate as he speaks. They said, go there and see how degenerate the world has become. The art was shocking. How could people paint like that? We decided it was all garbage, a pigsty." Unquote. Another account is from the German abstract painter Bernard Schultz, who was an art student when he visited the exhibition. It was packed, and most people found the art awful. But there were many students from the Art Academy who examined the works closely, knowing it could be the last time they'd be burned or God knows what. The expressionists in that exhibit were our idols, our gods." Unquote. All 112 artists singled out in the show were labeled as degenerate. Only six of them were Jewish. The Nazi party, under the aesthetic direction of Adolf Hitler, were not simply outlawing certain art based on the political or racial associations of the artists who created it. They set out with a deliberate aim to kill the modern art movement of the 1920s and to limit human expression to arbitrary rules. All these artists were to be despised, and their fates were varied. Some, like Otto Dix, chose to stay, but having been fired from their post at a university, were sent off to the countryside and warned to only paint landscapes from now on. Others, like Alex Beckmann, who was one of the most celebrated German artists of the 1920s, chose to flee. After hearing Adolf Hitler speak about his disdain for modern art, he packed his belongings and escaped with his wife to Amsterdam, living in self-imposed exile for 10 years, but with the freedom to paint whatever and however he wished. Others faced even more tragic ends, like Ernst Ludwig Kirchner, who volunteered for the army in World War I, suffered a mental breakdown and was discharged. Like Otto Dix, his work sometimes portrayed the psychological trauma that veterans of war frequently face. His 1915 painting, titled Self-Portrait as a Soldier, portrays a man in uniform with a severed right hand, cavernous black eyes, and smoking a cigarette, while in the background, a nude prostitute looks away. The Nazis stormed Kirchner's studio after 1933, confiscating all of his paintings. By the time of the exhibition in 1937, 600 of his works were either sold or destroyed. He went from being a promising artist whose work was selling well in the 20s, to an outlawed degenerate whose self-portrait, which conveyed the traumas he suffered as a soldier in World War I, became an object of ridicule in the degenerate art exhibit. He destroyed his other artworks, and a year later, in 1938, he committed suicide. Then there is the strange case of Emile Nolde, who was one of the first expressionist painters and also a vocal early supporter of the Nazi party. While most of the artists in the exhibition were in opposition to the Nazis, Emile Nolde supported the vision they held of a nationalistic pride and shared their anti-Semite prejudices. Yet ironically, his art was some of the most hated, 
not even Nazi party affiliation, saved him from ridicule and persecution. Twenty-seven of his paintings hung in the show, more than any other painter. Afterward, Emil Nolde was forbidden from creating any paintings. The Nazis especially wanted to make an example of him. But he would continue to paint in secret, switching from oil paint to watercolors, because the Nazi police would often suspect he was painting when they smelled turpentine on his clothes and would threaten his life. And yet, other artists saw the writing on the wall early on, when the first speeches by Hitler were given, denouncing modern art. Artists like Konrad Felix Müller, who burned and destroyed his own artworks before the Nazi police arrived. His son, Titus Felix Müller, recounts that awful time, saying, Of course we were afraid. We saw what was going on in the streets in 1933, so we weren't surprised when the police came one morning. They were searching for anything that could incriminate my father. We'd expected them. My father had been burning things for days. We children had to go outside to see that the chimneys were not smoking too much. We didn't want it to look like he was burning paper. He burned his correspondences, his letters, anything that might reveal his political views. He also burned his paintings. One was very large. Only the head was left. I still have it in my home. He knew what happened to people taken to the concentration camps. He knew about the camps, and he did everything to avoid them. He had two sons, a family. He didn't want to die. You love your paintings like children, but security first. The Degenerate Art Exhibition became one of the most successful art exhibits of all time. It toured Austria and Germany for over four years. Over three million people attended it, inadvertently introducing countless people to a form of modern art they would have never otherwise been exposed to. After World War II, after Hitler's suicide and the fall of the Nazis, the term degenerate artist became a type of badge of honor for the artists who survived the period. But the scars and psychological trauma from that era continued on in the public consciousness and the collective unconscious for succeeding generations, fertile ground for art and human expression for many decades to come. I'm telling you. Art is dangerous. If you'd like to learn more about the artists mentioned in this episode and see the artworks that were featured in the Degenerate Art Exhibition of 1937, head over to mjdorian.com forward slash dangerous, where you can enjoy a companion gallery I've put together just for this episode. 
A link to that page is also in the episode details. This episode was Exhibit B in my Art is Dangerous mini-series. If you'd like to listen to Exhibit A, just scroll down in your podcast feed between episodes 25 and 26, and check out Art is Dangerous Exhibit A, The Devil Wood Incident. I'd like to extend a big thank you to all my patrons for your continued support. It really is what helps this show keep going. If you'd like to gain access to exclusive episodes, like the current limited release series I have released about Kurt Cobain, as well as the creativity tip episodes and episode exclusives, head on over to my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. Each tier level gets you a different range of goodies. Check it out. That's patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. And thank you in advance for your support. If you'd like to learn more about the Degenerate Art Exhibit, I highly recommend a documentary released in 1993, which served as great source material for the interview segments featured in this episode. It's called Degenerate Art, directed by David Grubin. You can find it on YouTube. I'll include a link in the episode details for that. The next episode will be part two of the Kurt Cobain series, which will be available on my Patreon, and part three of Carl Jung's Seven Sermons, which will be available here in the main podcast feed. Be sure to activate the bell notification for Creative Codex in your podcast app, so you know the moment that it's released, which will be later this month. Thank you again for your support and for sharing the show. And this has been Creative Codex. I am your host, MJ Dorian. Until next time, stay dangerous. Stay dangerous.